And good morning, Creekside. And it's great to be here with you, worshiping with you. And if you're here visiting with us, welcome. We're glad to have you here. And um, I just want to say, like, if you would like to um, connect with us, we would like to connect with you. Um, let's make it like a mutual thing, you know? So on the other side of the wall there, as you came in, there's uh, some connect cards, and we'd love to have you fill that out and just get a chance to reach out to you and, and um, find out who you are and, and tell us a little bit about Creekside and what it means to get connected. Um, man, the world is uh, rough right now, okay? This is how I feel. This is what's led us into 2 Corinthians 4. So by the way, if you um, have your Bible and want to open it up, we're in 2 Corinthians 4 this morning. And um, as we look at this, um, I, we're just feeling like we're talking about family on a mission. We're talking about our mission. What are, what are we as Creekside Church trying to do? And who are we trying to be in this season? And so we've been saying that we, um, we are seeking to glorify God by finding life in Jesus together and inviting others to do the same. And as we've been talking about that, there's a uh, tendency, I feel, to want that to be like a triumphalistic type of a thing, right? Um, we're going to find life in Jesus together, doggone it, and we are going to invite people to do the same, and it's going to be great, and we're going to be super successful. And I feel like even as we were rolling out this, um, these ideas of like, who are we as a church, I feel like we all bought in, feels that way to me, we all bought in, we're like, yes, this is great, this is perfect, and then I feel like life got harder than it's been in a little while, and that's saying something, okay? And so it feels like there's this, this weight and this heaviness. So let me ask you this. When, when was the last time that you met with somebody to have a discussion and you didn't small talk about COVID for like five or 10 minutes? Like, I just, I can't help myself. It's like anyone I'm talking to, it's like, man, you wouldn't believe what's going on, you know? And we just, we solve the problem, you know, every time we meet for at least five to 10 minutes and sometimes much longer than that. Um, politics used to take up the first bit of small talk and now it's kind of lulled and maybe that's just because I haven't been checking my phone as much as you all. Some of you are like, politics have not lulled, my friend. You're just not looking. And I'm sure that's true. Everything is just like heavier, more difficult, uh, different, more frustrating. Um, everyone else is more insane, right, than they've ever been, right? And so we're just trying to figure all that out. And then, and then there's this. So I, um, there's this constant, like, people love to talk about how dead and how dying the church is. Like, people love to talk about that. And so I, I, I see all the articles and everything else. So Gallup has been doing these polls to try to track, um, you know, religion, church-going people in America for a long time. So 1937, they did their poll. And how many people do you think were, like, church-going Americans in 1937? Throw out some percentages. 51, 90, Okay. 73% is, uh, is the number of church-going people back in 1937, okay? Now, fast forward, let's ride this train a while, okay? 1999, what do you think that percentage was at? 45? 70% in 1999. So think about that. That's a long period of time with only a little 3% dip. So, man, Christianity was thriving. Jesus was awesome for that whole period of time, right? Well, then fast forward a couple of decades, okay, and you get to 2018, and they did their study, 15, 50% of people in 2018. So that's a big jump from 99, man, this new millennium is just like killer for churches. And then finally, right before the pandemic, they released their study, and for the first time in American history, fewer people were church-going people 
than, um, than were churchgoers, right? So uh, it was 47% in 2020, and like who can even imagine or figure out how to count what that would be now, right? So who knows? But there's these stories of Christianity is dead or Christianity is dying, and man, it's time to like give up, right? Let's cut bait. Let's like go do something else. Like this is clearly a losing thing. And I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I, it makes me feel sad, obviously. It makes me feel like, come on, guys, like this whole thing is awesome. Why aren't we doing this together? Let's jump in. But there's all, everybody is so quick to just point out um, this thing is, this thing is going in the wrong direction, right? Well, here's the thing. Here's my question that I want us to wrestle honestly with this morning. What makes us think? Why have we ever believed that Christianity, that healthy faith, that the church needs to always look like growth that's up and to the right? Like, why do we always assume that's the case? Because I'll tell you, if you zoom out just a hot minute and look at church history for 2,000 years, it is an absolute roller coaster, right? There's times where Christianity has dom- dominated the universe, and that hasn't always been a good thing. And there's times where it's like any observer would have been like, Christianity is as done as it could possibly be. There is no coming back from this. But we know God's working, right? We, God is working, whether we perceive it or not. And all of these numbers, all these things, I feel like it's hard for us to see the life and the growth and the work when things are difficult or when our faith is unpopular or any of those kinds of things. And so the question is, what do we as the church or what do we as individuals do when we fall on hard times, when things get rough, when it's not feeling successful, when we're not getting out of it what we want to get out of it, all those kinds of things. And so thankfully, Paul is going to answer all this for us. So last week, we started in 2 Corinthians 4. And Paul's whole thing in this section is simplifying ministry for us. It it is not a triumphalistic picture of ministry that we get in 2 Corinthians 4. We looked last week at the first six verses where Paul is basically saying, look, like, we're not going to mess with this thing. We're not going to do underhanded, clever, strategic types of things. We're just going to give you an open statement of the truth. And all we're trying to do is speak openly about who Jesus is. That, that idea of like finding life in Jesus. We're just going to present it openly. And what we're trying to do is just see the glory of God reflected in the face of Jesus. If we can just ourselves see Jesus and help other people see Jesus, that's what ministry is all about. And then he takes a turn in verse 7. And this is where we start this morning. And Paul says this. Paul says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the term jars of clay, but I assume that like you, yes, it's a 90s band that continued a little bit longer, but probably should have just one album, they would have been great, and I can never hear that phrase without thinking of jars of clay, the band, okay? <clears throat> but what, what it is, okay, it's not talking about an ironically successful rock band. It is talking about pots that are made of clay, right? Like, like vessels that are not the fanciest vessels that mankind is able to produce, right? They are clay. They are common. They are fragile vessels. We've covered a lot of clay pots from the ancient world, and almost all of them are shattered and broken. So these are not the, like, durable materials. This is a container that's relatively common that carries something. And so, here we go. Paul is saying, we are these jars of clay, and so here's, here, you know those moments where like, you feel like, oh my goodness, the preacher is speaking exactly, specifically to me, just going to help you out. This is one of those moments, okay? I'm talking to you, nobody else, <laughs> just to you, okay? And here in this space, I want you to hear this, okay? You 
are not strong. In fact, here's the thing. You are weak. You are fragile. You are insufficient. You are inadequate. And I want you to just feel the weight of it because here's the other thing. I know that when I say that to you specifically, you know it's true, right? You're trying to be strong, but you're not. You're weak. And here's the other thing. All the rest of us know it too, okay? We know that you're weak. We know that you are inadequate. We know that you're frail, okay? And so Paul is saying, we've got this treasure in these jars of clay. And he's looking at us and just saying, man, we're this fragile bunch. And, and toughen up as we might, right? We hit the gym. We, we work on our feelings. We work on, like, overcoming our triggers and all these kind of things that we do to, like, beef ourselves up. But he's saying, we're just these jars of clay. But inside of these clay jars, there is this immense treasure that's at work. There's this immense treasure that's, that's held within that whole thing. And I think the, the reality is it's not as, there's a side of me that's like, oh, that's really depressing. Like we're just, God chose all these inadequate things. But here's the thing. The Old Testament, you read all these stories about amazing things that God did. Like God did incredible, miraculous things in the Old Testament. One thing you never really read in the Old Testament is God looked at so-and-so, saw that he was incredibly strong and talented and said, I'm going to use him to accomplish my purpose, right? We know. What did God do? He chooses the second son instead of the first, right? He chooses the like 10th son who's like shepherding and nobody would even think of him and makes him the king, right? He uses David to defeat Goliath. He takes an army with, with like Gideon, takes an army that's like not that huge, but God's like, yeah, I don't know. It's still kind of a big army. Let's get rid of more of these people, and I want to beat the world with the small army, right? Or let's not even do battle at all. Let's march around the city, and let's sing praise songs, and then we'll watch the walls tumble down. God has always been about accomplishing amazing, big, impossible things through the weakest possible people. That's just how God works. So, I'm sorry to say we are weak and fragile, and you're not fooling anybody by trying to convince them that you're not, but I'm glad to say that's exactly what God loves to use. And so in these jars of clay, there is this immeasurable treasure. We, we did, yesterday we did a, um, a parenting workshop, and it was so good and just so like refreshing to kind of remind ourselves of what matters in parenting. And one of the big things that we were all able to confess to each other is that none of us are great parents. <laughs> You know, you just, we all are making mistakes. We all feel inadequate for what we're doing. And Alyssa Berge, one of the things she told us, she was one of the ones leading the thing. One of the things she told us is she says, okay, um, you know, the data is actually out. The data is like come in and it shows that good enough parents are actually good enough, right? So that's good news, right? We're never the perfect parent, but good enough actually kids, you know, live and they survive and they become adults. And like it just happens, right? That's the only reason any of us are here, Right. So the, there's a weakness inherent, right, in what we're doing and who we are, and yet there's something big, and there's this amazing treasure, and there's this amazing power at work even amongst, like, how weak we are and how light we are. So what is, what is the treasure? I mean, so he says it like this. In, in verse 6, if you look just right before, we ended it with, the treasure looks like, he says, the God who said, let light shine out of, shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. That is, I think, the treasure, this, this light of the glory of God, like this, the knowledge of the glory of God coming through the face of Jesus, that's the treasure that's held inside of our clay vessels. Like, so back to last week, it's a simple ministry we have. It's just all about the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus, and that's all we have, is we get to see that glory in the face of Jesus and spend the rest of our lives treasuring that and understanding it and living in it to a greater and greater degree all the time and that's, all we sh- that's what we carry. We're these vessels, these clay vessels that are carrying that vision, that picture, that light of the glory of God in the face of Christ to the people around us. And what the reality is, is that that's actually insanely good news. As simple as it is, that's insanely good news. Because here's the problem. We live our lives, and you've probably been living your life, many of us have been, um, trying to prove ourselves, right? We live our lives trying to prove ourselves. Maybe it's to a parent. Maybe it's to a spouse. Maybe it's to like society as a whole or to our boss or something like that. We live our lives trying to um, prove ourselves, and yet the gospel says in the face of Jesus, we realize we're already accepted, and we don't need to prove ourselves. We couldn't if we wanted to, right? Many of us live our lives um, terrified of hurting the people that we love, and there's all this fear that we're going we're gonna to not come through. We're going to fail them. We're going to hurt them ourselves, and the gospel comes in and says, we're shepherded by the good shepherd who's caring and working beyond our capabilities to make sure um, that it all is a good story that he's weaving together. We live our lives constantly uncertain and not knowing what to do and not understanding what's happening to us all the way. And yet in that uncertainty, the gospel says in the face of Jesus that we are guided by the one who is the source of all wisdom. We're constantly hurting, and yet we find in Christ that there is constant healing for the pain that we feel and the brokenness that we have, right? Right? We're constantly searching for something, for someone, right? And we find in the gospel that that one that we've been searching for, he does indeed exist. And in fact, he loves us and wants us and has been pursuing us. And so there's this great, beautiful reminder, right? That in these clay pots, there is this immense treasure that gets carried around. And the reminder that Paul's giving us is that the message inside is bigger, more important than the messenger, right? The message inside is more important than the envelope, more important than the, what it's carrying the message. So when I was a kid, um, as you can probably imagine, I was like a pretty cute little kid, okay? Cute enough to be selected as a ring bearer for a wedding, okay? So I'm, I'm, I know it sounds braggy, but I'm not meaning to, but I was like really little, and so it was like a friend's wedding, like a family friend, and so I got chosen to carry the thing. The problem is, okay, like I was insanely unreliable, right? I mean, like, Imagine a kid just holding a pillow. Like, you guys know how this goes. And yet here on the pillow is the most treasured, the most expensive possession this couple has ever purchased in their life, right? And you're just taking this cute little kid to, like, walk it down. So they definitely, I think they at least sewed the rings onto the pillow. And I kind of think that they, it was a bait and switch. Like, they were fake rings on the pillow. I'm pretty sure. Or I was thinking of a different kind of ring bearer, okay? And um, I'm reading with my oldest daughter, Lord of the Rings, okay? And the ring bearer is this little hobbit who is obviously inadequate and incapable and constantly doubting himself. And um, yet he's tasked with carrying the most important possession that all the world is fighting over, and he carries that thing, right? Or think of an atom, right? Which is so tiny and the most common thing in the universe because it kind of is everything in the universe, right? All these little atoms. But any one of those atoms split it open, and there's this immeasurable power inside of it that can be used for good or evil, right? In all this, it's, it, the reminder is that the, the vessel is like not nearly as important as the thing that it carries. And Paul is saying exactly that. Yes, 
You are weak. You are inadequate. You are insufficient. You will crack and you will break and you can be discarded. All those kinds of things. All your fears about that are true. Yes, you are insignificant in a sense, right? But the reality is, is that God changes all that and he selects these clay pots and says, here is where my treasure is carried. And so there's so much power. The, the lie is that we need to be powerful. Like we're carrying this message, so we need to be powerful. We need to be good. We need to have it together so that we can carry this power in a triumphant way to the people that are around us. No, that, that's not true, right? Paul literally says the treasure is in the jars of clay to show that the power comes from God himself. We believe the lie that we need to be powerful, and the reality has always been that he is powerful, and he's working that power through us. It makes a world of difference. Our third value, as, we, as we've been talking about our mission and our values, our third value is empowerment, that we each use our gifts as God empowers. And so this is literally part of what shapes us as a church family, is this empowerment of God. All right, you ready for some more depressing stuff? Paul gets worse. Um, so this will be verses 8 and 9 here. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So this is a hard description of the human life, okay? Paul's talking about his ministry, right? And you wish he'd say, like, man, we are encouraging people. We are well-received. We are... Um, we are sharing the gospel and people are responding in droves. No, instead he says, this is what it looks like for me. Um, we are afflicted, persecuted, struck down, perplexed, and he's just laying it out in these hard terms. And this is a reminder that life consists in suffering. Like suffering is a key ingredient in life in a fallen world. So if you've ever, if you've ever experienced life without suffering, you probably are just in an artificial lull or you're not paying attention or you're just like hopelessly optimistic. But I will say, as a huge optimist, this has been a tough season to be an optimist in, okay? Constantly trying to spin it, and there's always somebody there to say like, no, no, don't be excited about that either, and here's why. And they've got very compelling reasons, I have to say. <clears throat> but I'm still fighting it. Suffering always, what, what suffering does, suffering reminds us that we're not in control, right? We like to be in control. We feel good when we're in control. And we can, uh, we can con just control and decide and, and, and regulate what happens around us. But suffering is always a reminder that we're not in control because who would choose suffering, right? Who would choose like, you know what? If I could choose to have things good or bad, I'm going to have things bad for a while. No, 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 we don't do that. Suffering is always an occasion where we lose our agency and something happens to us rather than us deciding what happens. And when that happens, what we do is it's a reminder that we are out of our depth and that we have been really from the day that we've been born. We're out of our depth. We can't control it. We've lost our agency. And so we fight and we struggle and we throw tantrums and we yell and we try to get ourselves back into a place where we feel like we're in control again. I, I, um, I came across this great video from uh, Jordan Peterson. He's a philosopher. And uh, he says this, he says, I watched Fox News, and you guys are like, oh my goodness, what's he about to say? Don't worry, don't worry, it's fine, I promise you, trust me. I watched Fox News release a message this week. There are terrible things afoot under the surface of our society, and the perpetrators are coming for you and coming for us. And then I watched the Democrats respond in panic and anger, saying, there are terrible things afoot under the surface of our society, and the perpetrators are coming for you and coming for us. And I love the way that he says that because he says, look, here's the one side giving this message of 
everything's messed up, and they're coming to get you, and it's going to be terrible. Watch out. And he says the other side responds, and what are they saying? It's the exact same thing, okay? Now, I don't want to take away your favorite news station, whichever one it is. All I'm saying is it's all the same thing, right? The world is broken, and everything's going to happen to you in a way that's not good, and so what? What do we do? Do we prepare? Do we stockpile? Do we legislate? Do we protest? Do we, like, what do we do in response to it? Meanwhile, all of it, I think, is just an attempt for us to try to regain some semblance of control. And even if our actions we don't feel like are going to give us control of the situation again, we like to try to find explanations, right? And so we could go around and we could all explain, okay, tell me why did COVID start? How do we end it, right? Who's been the biggest idiot in this whole thing, right? And we could all share our views, but all of it is like beyond our understanding in a sense. And all of it, I think, on some level is this attempt for us to try to regain some explanatory power, which helps us to feel like we're in control because at least we understand why. And if everyone would would just listen to me, we could get out of this situation, right? We're all trying so hard to stop the suffering, to get back. And I think, meanwhile, we've just been throwing tantrums a lot. And I I don't mean to minimize. I mean, there's so many big things and there's heavy things. And I feel like as a parent, right, there's big things that we have to try to figure out for the sake of our kids. And I see, I mean, even my grandma is like so worried about me and my generation. She still thinks I'm young, which is sweet. And and she's like, oh, what the world is doing. And I'm like, grandma, we're fine. I'm worried about my kids, right? There's big things that are heavy that are out there that we do have to wrestle with. So I don't want to minimize all that. But I think, I think the reminder that Paul is giving us is the suffering itself is not necessarily like our biggest problem. Like the suffering comes because we're weak. We, we, when we're weak, we're dependent. And I think Paul is saying when you're weak and you're dependent, big deal. Like that's how God designed it to function, right? The surpassing power comes from God and what he needs from us is not to figure it out and not to solve it. Um, but to walk in faithfulness and to continue moving and to, to work to bring hope, healing, and the gospel, the, the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus to the world around us in the midst of all of that. That's the call. So th- this week I reread um, sections of Hen- Henry Nouwen has this great little book called The Wounded Healer. And he's talking about leadership. He says leadership, like we perceive it as who's a leader in our society. It's somebody that's strong. It's somebody that has the answers. It's someone that can explain and train and, and get us moving in a direction but he says the, 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 the leader that the world needs now is a wounded healer, somebody who's standing amidst the people around him and her and, and looks around and says, like, I am being hurt by the very things that you're hurt by. And I experience all the same frustrations and weaknesses that you experience. And someone that can kind of come alongside and say, hey, let's do this together. Let me help you. Let me walk with you. One, one thing I found this week, okay, if you ever find yourself turning 40, okay, Gifts used to be cool. Gifts become socks when you turn 40. Like, if you're 40, you're going to get socks. And if people know that you have a huge man crush on Mr. Rogers, then you're definitely going to receive some Mr. Rogers socks. So I'm just, if you can see people on the live stream, I don't know if you can see that. Um, And I'll just, I won't give any specifics, but this is not my only pair of Mr. Rogers socks, okay? (laughs) Mr. Rogers Rogers is amazing because he... uh, in, to the day of his death, like, remembered what it was like to be a kid. And he would go on the air day after day after day. He was, he was like a seminary-trained pastor. And um, I love thinking about all the classmates that he had in seminary that went on to do, you know, preaching sermons and counseling people and all these really serious pastoral attacks, uh, tasks. And here's Mr. Rogers, their, their fellow graduate from seminary, 
just every day on the air talking to kids. And Mr. Rogers remembered what it was like to be um, a kid himself. And so rather than explaining everything about the world to the kids, um, he explained plenty, right? But what he did best, I think, was just taking their hand. And when the world was crazy, and it, it always has been, right? There was crazy things that during Mr. Rogers' ministry um, that make some of the things we're experiencing now pale in comparison in some senses, right? When the crazy things happened, he just took the kid's hand and told him it was going to be okay. Told him simple things like, you don't, you don't have to be afraid all the time. You, you can never go down the drain in the bathtub, he told them, right? Which I think someone should dig into why he was afraid of that as a kid, but he was. And <laughs> he just tried to be compassionate and this like faithful presence to guide the kids. And I just, I love that so much. The call, the reminder for us to just be a faithful presence with people, that we can just be fragile pots set next to other fragile pots, and we get the opportunity and the blessing and the privilege of being filled with this glory of God, this amazing treasure that we get to share and help other people experience as well. And so Paul says, um, the things he mentions in these verses, 8 and 9, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. And I think he's saying there, like, it hurts, and I'm hindered in what I want to do, but I'm still moving forward. He says, we're perplexed, but not driven to despair. So I think he's acknowledging, right, there's this confusion, there's this disillusionment, but it's not something that's made him give up. He's persecuted, but not forsaken. So definitely being targeted and attacked, but never left all the way alone. And, and then he says, I'm struck down, but not destroyed. And my optimist self can't find a way to make struck down not seem that bad. Like that's, I suffered a blow. I've been defeated. I'm on the ground, right? But the blow didn't destroy me completely, and it didn't destroy me forever. And he's just helping us to see, man, ministry we think is going to be amazing. And, and, and again, I said it last week, ministry, I'm not saying like ministry, like myself as a pastor, I do ministry. No, Creekside, it, it is us, right? We are the ministers. That's, that's like throughout the New Testament. We are the ministers. Minister, ministry is what we do. It's the mission that we follow to help people. Like we find that life in Jesus together and we help other people, invite people to do the same thing. And Paul describes it, man, it's, it's hard, it's rough. And I'll just say that the worst seasons, the worst um, seasons in church history have always been the ones where Christianity in, is the easiest, right? So you, you, the early church was persecuted, and then Constantine came in as this great savior and legalized Christianity and eventually becomes the state religion. And in some ways, that's great, right? And in other ways, it leads into all these other problems because Christianity is easy and popular, and um, it'll further your career and all those kinds of things. There's so many uh, periods throughout the medieval church where this was the case. Um, Denmark, when Kierkegaard was writing, was the same way. Modern America, I think the same thing. When Christianity becomes popular, when Christianity becomes easy, there's all of these problems that come in. But Jesus, by contrast, suffered throughout his ministry. Paul suffered throughout his ministry. I think we are in a season of suffering, and it's not as bad as it could be, of course, right? But we're in this season where there's a lot to mourn. There's a lot that we're missing out on. There's a lot that's a lot harder to do than it used to be. And as we're talking, um, as we're trying to carry this life of Jesus to the people around us, it's hard in ways that it didn't used to be. So Paul is going to get just a touch more depressing, so hang on. Verses 10 through 12, he says, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. All right, that is tough. I mean, he says the word death three times, describing his daily life, okay? 
Uh, he uses the word always twice in there. I mean, this is pretty dark stuff. And so he's talking about this heaviness and this death that's always present, that's in our bodies, it's affecting um, everything that we do as we live our lives, right? And so we're, it's just, it's ironic that we're following Jesus in the most like Instagrammable way possible, right? It's all the highlights, it's all the good stuff. And when we don't feel as hashtag blessed as the people around us in our life, right? It's like that's a missing thing. It's like we've, we're doing something wrong or we're experiencing something unusual. I think Paul is trying to reset the balance and say, hey, we are always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. So, so the question we have, right, is what should the Christian life actually look like? Like, how do we respond to a hard season in life? What is it, what should the Christian life look like? I'm going to answer that with a picture. And this is what the Christian life looks like. Now, I just want to say real quick, I had to put up a picture of a cross because we are going to put the cross back up on the stage. I know many of you are very concerned. I am pro-cross, okay? We're just getting a lovely one that's going to fit the new backdrop and everything else. But here's the cross, okay? And this is a reminder that this is what the Christian life actually looks like, okay? We serve a Savior who lived his life. Not everything in his life was miserable. He, he laughed. He was happy. He was full of joy, okay? All these things, and his disciples, they celebrated. All these kinds of things are good and positive, but Jesus' life ultimately was a life where he is stretching out his arms on the cross. He is offering himself for the sins of the world, right? Offering himself to the people to, to provide hope and healing and forgiveness and life to people around him. How by laying himself down. And there's so much life in Jesus, but it comes as he lays himself down. And I think Paul is basically saying to all of us, when you think of the Christian life, when I, and Paul's like, when I think of my ministry, the death of Jesus is always at work in my mortal body. I'm always carrying this around with me. And so it's Paul who's ministering, who's seeing this life in Jesus and offering it to other people, but he's saying, man, it just feels a whole lot like this crucifixion process that Jesus went through, where he was willing to suffer for the sake of life for everybody else. And Jesus, we know, found joy. There was joy set before him as he endured the cross. Like, it is not saying, let's be the saddest Christians out there, man. Let's do it. No, it's saying there's joy, but it's going to look a whole lot more cross-shaped than we tend to think. It's not going to look always like up and to the right. It's going to look more cross-shaped. And so suffering then becomes this sort of death to ourselves, this death that brings life. And Paul is very clear. Not only does he mention death, he also mentions life a few times in here, doesn't he? And so it's this death. We carry the death of Jesus in our bodies, right? We're always being given over to death. There's this suffering and this heaviness and this weight to everything that we're doing, and things aren't working out right, and we're being persecuted. We're being put to death. But he's saying, in the midst of that, man, there's this life that is being offered to the people around us. There's this life that I'm experiencing. Even as we die to certain things in ourselves, that's like a pruning, and it can bear more fruit. And suffering, the seasons of suffering that we endure, can be the seasons where there's the greatest growth. I mean, I think we all kind of know that's true, don't we? Like, the seasons of suffering are often the seasons of greatest growth. Now, that doesn't keep us from complaining about them, but I hope it helps us have this deeper-seated time of saying, okay, life is hard right now. It's harder than it's ever been. I want to watch and pray for the growth that God's going to put in my life. The, the reality is, is that uh, suffering does not automatically produce growth, okay? It is possible, unfortunately, to suffer and to handle that suffering in such a way that you refuse to change. And so instead, you're just allowing yourself to be as miserable as you possibly can be. And you come out on the other side, the same miserable, grumpy person that you were before you went into the suffering, right? But if in the suffering, we can open our hands and we can look to Jesus and we can say, okay, Lord, you suffered on my behalf. You're inviting me into some of that suffering. 
look, I am your jar. I am your pot, and please just fill me with your glory. Carry me through this. Those are the times where suffering becomes this fertile soil that can produce all of this growth. And I'm, I'm, I literally have seen it with my kids over the last couple of years. They've been through some crazy, what our kids have been through is nuts. Um, and yet I'm seeing growth in them that's insane, like insane. Like they're, they're, God is working in them. And I think some of it is the soil of suffering they've experienced. The invitation is for us to experience that too and to, in the suffering, learn to relate to ourselves properly. Not, not trying to say, we got to be better, we got to be um, stronger, we got to not crack, we got to not, no, no, no. Relate to ourselves properly, relate to God properly, see who we are in light of who he is and offer ourselves to him. And as I was thinking about this idea of carrying the death of Christ, I, um, I thought of two kinds of martyrs. And one, one is the very traditional type of martyr. And that's, think of like Justin Martyr or, I mean, Christians throughout history that have given their lives. They've been thrown to lions. They've been offered the opportunity, okay, deny Christ or we're going to kill you now. And countless Christians throughout history have chosen that. In that moment, stepped up, had the bravery in that moment to say, I won't refuse Jesus. I won't deny him. And so they're put to death for their faith. Now that takes insane bravery it takes insane resolve. It takes trust in who Jesus is. Um, and that's a really epic, traditional type of martyrdom. There's another kind of martyrdom that I see. And um, in, so without trying to be um, controversial or affirming of a theology that's very different than my own, but someone like Mother Teresa experienced a martyrdom that looked a little bit more like day after day after day, carrying in her body the dying of Jesus, right? As she goes into like the slums of Calcutta, the poorest of the poor, the people that nobody would ever touch or look at or care about. And day after day after day, she gave her life in service to these people. She didn't have a life that was her own. Her life was offered out. And that is a different sort of a martyrdom, right? It's a different sort of a suffering. And I'm not saying find the hardest thing that you could possibly do in your life and do that and God will be more pleased with you. No, I'm simply saying this, carrying in our body the death of Jesus, like embodying that, it just looks like, Lord, whatever I'm in, if you, if you give them the opportunity to, um, to be this vessel that carries you, right? The, the idea of being a clay jar is not, let's put the glory of God inside of me so that I can be like, just love it and be filled with it and be amazed by it, right? There's part of that, but the jar is meant to carry something, right? From one place to another. It's to store it and carry it, right? Presumably so that it can be consumed or spread or something like that, right? So here we are, we're the jars of clay and the glory of Christ is inside of us. All of this life and all of this, as Paul says, this amazing power is inside of us. And what he wants is to spread that to the world around us, spread it to the people around us. And so we get the opportunity to be these weak vessels. He's never asked us to be anything different than that. Just be a weak vessel. That's who he's made us to be. We live in a fallen world. We're going to experience brokenness, our own brokenness and the brokenness that other people put onto us. We're going to experience the sin of others and our own sin. And in all of that, we can constantly just let's take Paul's actual point. Because Paul's point here is not just look at how hard everything is, right? He says plenty of hard things, perplexed, afflicted, uh, struck down, all these hard things he says. But what is his actual point? He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power will be from God and not from us, right? We can see what the whole point is, is that we are, we contain an insane amount of power, right? An immeasurable treasure and this, this, this like unmatched power is within us. So let me look at you again, okay? And again, I'm not talking to anybody else. I'm talking only to you. You are powerful. You are so incredibly powerful. And of course, hey, I'll whisper it softly. You're still just a clay pot. Don't try to make yourself anything more than just a clay pot. You are that, okay? But you are filled with so much power. 
And, and that, that is what makes, that's the miracle of existence. That's how the church has lasted 2,000 years. That's how every single time that the experts get up and they say, Christianity is dead. And man, the church will never be the same again. And boy, the church could never survive this. It's happened again and again and again and again and again. God is there and he's taking these clay vessels, right? The powerful people go their own way. The people that are impressive lose interest. And all we're left with is these clay pots. And God says, perfect. I'm going to fill these ones up with my glory. And I'm going to help let, allow them to experience all this life. And they're just going to carry it around, right? No arrogance, no pride. The su suffering is amazing to remove our pride from us, right? And it hurts to lose that pride. But it, we're filled with the life of Jesus. And we carry it around to the people around us. And it is beautiful. And God's done it for thousands of years. And he's going to continue doing it now.